0: Eternal youth, we all want to stay forever young. You think you're tough now, but you're young. What are you going to be like when you're 80 years old? Find out in today's episode on maximizing your training lifespan. From the dojo to the octagon, we bring you the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast. This is your co-host Sri Pendekatla and with me is co-host Shihan Russ St. Hilaire, 7th degree black belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. How are you doing this evening, Shihan?
1: I am doing wonderful, Sri, and I'm so glad we're covering uh, the subjects that we're talking about tonight. It's really, really important and I'm really excited to have Kyle with us tonight to talk about some of those
0: important things. Me too, Shihan. It's always exciting to have a guest on the show. And at this time, I'd like to introduce our special guest today, Kyle Brennan. Kyle is a longtime student of Kobu Jiu-Jitsu, currently holding the rank of Blue Belt. Kyle's here today to discuss with us a topic that he brought to the forefront about maximizing your training lifespan. Welcome to the show, Kyle.
2: Thanks for having me, Shri and Shihan. I really appreciate it. All right, so I'll
0: turn it over to you, Kyle, to get us started.
2: All right. So, Shihan, as a student of yours, you know, I want to train as often as possible, but also as long as possible. And you've been training for 30 plus years. And my question to start us off is, how do we preserve our bodies to maximize our training lifespan?
1: Well, I think it's a combination of a couple of things, Kyle. I think it's training really, really smart and making sure that you preserve your body in the dojo. I think it's training outside of the dojo to to continue to develop your strength and your flexibility and your responsiveness and, and all of those type of things that really helps you in the dojo. And then I think a lot of it has to do with diet and how you fuel your body. I think that's that's really, really important. Um, so hopefully we can touch on on each one of those and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about you know, details, right, so things to do or not do when you're practicing Nagewaza Waza or Aiki or, 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 you know, uh, ne Waza, whatever, so, um, but I think it all fits into those three categories, right, how you behave in the dojo, how you behave outside of the dojo, and your diet. I
2: wanted to sort of start things off with an example, and I frame this in the context that there are different factors as it pertains to me as uke or someone's training partner, and I could be uh, much younger or much older than a training partner. And what sort of considerations would you want to share with someone in Uke shoes?
1: In all aspects of life, when you're, you know, 19, 20, 25, maybe all the way up to 30, you're pretty indestructible. Sure, an accident can happen. But, but in general, your body is really uh, flexible and, you know, you're at your height of strength. Um, you repair incredibly quickly. So, you know, even if you do get bumped or bruised or injured or tweaked in class, you, you tend to repair really quickly. So, you know, the body is just it's on your side. And when you get a little bit older than that, when you start moving into your 40s and then, you know, later into your 50s, it's its really different. Your body loses some of its flexibility so you have to work at that a little bit and your body also does not repair as quickly so sometimes it's two or three days that it takes to repair as opposed to just an overnighter where you know you did when you were 25 years old but also on the on the positive side as you get older your endurance increases your quality of muscle fiber increases much more than it did when you were in your 20s so you become smarter you become slyer you know you, you really start to understand how your body feels there is some positive side to that but i think when you're practicing in class it's not really an age factor that you have to take into consideration when you're working with your partner right so i'm not thinking that this 25 year old is looking at the 45 year old going oh geez I, sh- I should go pretty easy on this guy right i i really think what you both need to do is to say, how do we preserve our bodies? It's the same for a 25-year-old as a 40-year-old. It's about falling correctly. It's about you know, not straining yourself to try to execute a technique that should be easy to do when executed correctly, but now we're forcing it. It's about not trying to do crazy escapes from things when you're working with a partner where you could just as easily tap out. It's about making smart decisions, I think. So I'm, I'm not really sure... Age is really a factor, you know, when you're in within 20 years of each other. I, I think if you're, you know, a 30 year old and you're working out with a 70 year old master or something, yeah, you probably want to take into consideration that the value that person brings is in the knowledge and, and it's you're not out there to just choke them out or beat them up or whatever. It's it's to learn. But, you know, if it's, it's a 20 year span of, of difference, you both should be being, you know, pretty thoughtful and pretty careful because you both want a long training lifespan.
2: That makes a lot of sense. And that leads me to my next question. Can you recall any specific pitfalls from your early career?
1: Yeah, I can think of a couple of them, particularly. And maybe this applies to some of the people that are listening to it, and maybe not. I'm going to ask you to heed my advice. When you get injured in class, no matter how minor you may think it is, take pause for a minute. So if you tweak your thumb or your finger or your toe, Assess that for a second. Say, hey, did I did I break that? Or did I just kind of tweak that out? You know, maybe I should ice that. It's not all about being super, super tough. You know, I'm not talking about having a hangnail or something. I'm talking about, you know, you just, you just crunched your hand or you crunched your foot or you just twisted your ankle. It's totally worth it to step off the mat, ice that for a couple of days, and then get back in there strong. If you have maybe some more serious injuries like I had, um, where you twist your knee to the point where you have now you know, torn the meniscus off the bone or you've bulged a disc in your back. It's smart to stop, right? Right away, ice the thing. Go see a doctor. Make sure you know what's happening. It's not about being tough or being wimpy. It's about having longevity because at the end of the day, the people who last longest win. So I can tell you, My specific pitfall uh, were the two last things that I mentioned. At one point, I had hurt my back when I was in my late 20s, maybe early 30s, and I just kept going. I was just like, "I'm tough. I can can pain my way through this," and I just kept doing class. And you know, that has been a problem that has plagued me to this day. And um, you know, that's that's 30 something years later, and it's still a problem. So I I should have taken care of it at the time. The same with my knee. I think uh, one time I had twisted it really, really badly. I didn't realize that I had torn the meniscus off off the bone. I didn't actually tear the meniscus itself, I actually removed the whole thing right off the top of the bone. It hurt, uh, you know, it hurt at the time, but. I could have stopped and iced it, but I didn't. And then, you know, later I just went out with friends and I didn't really pay attention to it. I was like, yeah, so I hurt my knee in jujitsu, jiu- whatever. And then I woke up the next morning and it was like the size of a basketball. And it and it was bad and I ended up, you know, having to get surgery. So it, it's just... Don't let your ego get in the way when you have an injury, get that thing fixed. If you want longevity or that longevity is going to be through sheer will and going through all the pain and, 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 you know, lasting a long time. But I would have rather have done this without the pain. So please, please take care of yourself if you get an injury. And what about, you know, today I'm very, very, very careful. So I'm out there in class and I don't, I don't have a big ego out there in class of anybody of any rank. If they do it, technique correct and they st- they're getting to the point where they can tap me out, I don't have to do every single thing I know to escape from that. You know what, if they pulled off a good jujigatami or good udigurami or a good choke, it's so easy for me to just tap out, be extremely happy that jujitsu works for everybody, and then just move on and, and and not be injured. It's not all about winning sometimes. Sometimes it's just about lasting.
2: Is there anything you do proactively outside of class to stay ahead of potential injuries?
1: Absolutely. I think there needs to be a, a lot of training outside of class. If you're attending class maybe two or three times a week, hopefully three times, you know you, you have to do other things. You need to run. You need to swim. Uh, you need to lift weights. You need to do free body exercises like chin-ups and dips. You need to play, right? You need to play in the ocean or play by hiking or play by shooting, you know, a bow and arrow or or whatever it takes to functionally use the muscles and the skeletal structure of your of your body to keep it supple and young and and moving and free and to keep your joints in shape. I think it's really really important. And then as you get older, I really really would suggest that people do serious weightlifting, really serious resistance training. I go 3 times a week and You know, I really pump the iron and I do a lot of free weight stuff, a lot of chin ups, pull ups, dips, lunges, those type of things, because over time the joints of your body will deteriorate. There's nothing you can do about that. That That's just how it is. If you rub two sticks together long enough, right, they're, they're going to eventually fray. Well, that's essentially what your bones are. But the musculature that supports those bones, you can continue to develop and keep strong through your entire life. So I really suggest that as you get older, right, as you move into your 30s, as you move into your 40s, do a significant amount of of weight training because that musculature is really going to support your joints and your flexibility, and it's gonna keep you away from injury, it's gonna keep you strong, it's gonna keep you healthy.
2: Is there a particular set of strength training exercises that you prefer?
1: They come in categories. I mean, there are the basics, right? The real heavy-duty basics like squats, deadlifts, bench presses, shoulder press, bent-over rows, those type of big barbell-type movements that really use all of your body, I think are really key. Then maybe the smaller movements, like things that you would do for your biceps or your triceps or your delts or some work that's maybe specific to your calves or your quads or those type of things I think are important to do also. And then free body weight is incredibly important. Um, You know, I don't care how much weight you can curl with a barbell. If you can't pull yourself up in a pull-up, then you really haven't developed the bicep muscles and all of the coordinating musculature to move your body like that. So, you know, jujitsu is a fighting warrior art. It takes all of your body and your mind to execute. And so, I think making sure that you have a good mix of heavy weights, lighter, mo- more concentrated weights, cardio like running, riding a bike, and swimming, free body weight exercises like dips and chin ups and free you know, air squats and, and lunges, and then play, right? The play is, is incredibly important, is using all of those muscles that you've developed in, in functional activities, again, like mountain climbing or climbing ropes or doing a Tough Mudder or any of those type of things that really taxes the whole body simultaneously. At the end of the day, that's going to give you longevity in jujitsu.
2: You know what's uh, silly is that you know I've been training with you for over 5 years and I never really paid attention to my my form when it comes to burpees until
1: recently and it's <laughs> it's it's paid off. Sure. I mean there's a couple different kinds of burpees and and they both have their purpose. Uh the the two that I think are the most important are the military burpee and the CrossFit burpee. Um the CrossFit burpee is sort of where you just really throw yourself straight to the ground and then you know, jump back up as quick as you can. That'll allow you to get lots and lots and lots of reps, right? You're going to be working your shoulders, your chest, your thighs, your lower back. And then the military one is where you, you know, basically do a full squat, put your hands on the ground, jump back into a straight plank, then do a full push up, come back into the plank, jump back into a squat, and then jump straight in the air. I think those are more isolated movements. Uh, they they tend to lead to more strength. Um, so they're, they're both really important to be able to do well, one for endurance and, and one for strength. And boy, are they the, the full body, uh, the workout for just an, you know, an unweight aided type of exercise that those are great.
2: So I wanted to go back to in the dojo for a moment. Sure. And see if you have any thoughts on, I would classify myself as someone who is not very flexible Do you have any specific guidelines for individuals like that?
1: Sure. So first thing, I I just want to address the definition. What what is flexible? There's different kinds of flexibility. So I'm going to use myself as an example of of flexible. I can't do a split. I also, when I do the butterfly stretch and grab my feet, I can't get my knees to the ground. So compared to somebody who does that, that may look inflexible. But I also can sit on the ground uh, and fold my lower legs completely to the outside, you know, laying my feet and my lower legs comfortably on the ground and lay all the way backward and don't have any problem with my knees or my thighs at all. And maybe other people would find that to be extremely hard. So it really, really depends on the individual. Everybody's flexible in a different way. What's important? is are you flexible enough to execute what it is you need to execute? So, you know, if you work for Cirque du Soleil, that's going to demand a certain amount of flexibility for you to be successful in that livelihood. If you are a lumberjack, you might need a different type of flexibility than the person who works for Cirque du Soleil. If you're working in jujitsu, you need a different kind of flexibility, and that flexibility isn't the flexibility to be able to kick somebody in the head while spinning through the air or any of that kind of stuff. That flexibility is for you to be able to receive the techniques. Is my wrist flexible enough to accept a cote without breaking my wrist? Are my elbows, are my shoulders flexible enough? We get twisted up quite a bit and stacked. Is my lower back and my neck flexible enough to not injure either one of them while I'm working? Um, You know, we do knee bars and we do, you know, uh, heel hooks and ankle locks. You know, are those parts of my body flexible enough that when somebody does that, you know, I don't instantly tear something? So that flexibility goes right along with what you need to be flexible enough for. It's really the same as fitness. You know, the definition of fitness, is very, very, very broad. What are you trying to be fit for? So as a jiu you want to look at that type of flexibility. If for some reason you practice some style of uh, jiu-jitsu that constantly causes you to have to do a full split, I can't think of what that would be, but maybe it is, then that's something that's going to be important to you. But if that doesn't happen on a daily basis and it's not important, then I wouldn't spend a lot of time worrying about it.
2: So it's more like being aware of my my own limitations when when practicing things in the dojo.
1: Yeah, I would say your first your first focus on flexibility is can you receive the techniques without getting injured? And the second focus of flexibility is simply in the health of your muscles and your musculature over a long period of time.
2: Perfect. A training partner of mine by the name of John is extremely tall and right. he he shared with me that he has to jump into his throws when he's working with people that are significantly shorter than, him, which is basically everyone. Can you go into some detail about why he has to do that?
1: Well, I don't know why he has to do that, but let's talk a little bit about ukemi to start with, right? The falling techniques. And I, and I think this will in a roundabout way answer that question. I feel like people in Jiu Jitsu and, and maybe judo and other arts like hapkido and stuff that throw people, aikido, um, they think of falling or they think of ukemi as, as a, a passive thing. So once they learn how to do it, once they learn how to tuck their chin and you know have a curved body and slap the ground and keep their feet apart and all that stuff, then they're like, okay, I'm pretty good. You can throw me now. And just by thinking that, they're, they're saying that the throwing is the action. And, and the falling is the reaction, right? It, it's what you do when somebody throws you. And there's a little bit of truth to that, but what I would like people to think of is that ukemi is an activity. It is another set of techniques. It is something that allows you, if thrown, to easily survive that throw and to maybe even take advantage of that throw. So learning to do that with an active mindset and becoming extremely good at falling from all kinds of different angles, even when you don't expect it, is, I think, really, really important as a martial art technique. Because don't forget, when we say that we're practicing self-defense, we're defending against somebody trying to hurt us. And that's not just the dumb street punk trying to punch us in the head, right? If we run into a martial artist that knows how to do a harai goshi or an uchimata or something like that, we have to be able to use our techniques to defend against that, right? To survive that throw. So taking that active position, I think is really important. I I don't think anybody should jump for somebody. Um, If you're having to jump simply because that person can't handle your size or weight, then you're probably mismatched as a training partner. Um, But I would say, being able to smoothly and in a very controlled way be able to take a fall from anyone uh, is is really key. Um, but I really I really would discourage jumping into into a, a technique.
2: The um, example that you shared about another martial artist harrying me on the street is something that I had not considered. So thank you very much for that.
1: Oh yeah, no problem. I mean. Any good warrior is going to assess the threat level around them at all times. And if you were, you know, living in 1975, the likelihood of you running into anybody that would know how to throw you with, you know, a Harai Goshi or an Uchimada or a Tomoe Nagi or a Kubenagi, uh, or anything like that, or even being able to, you know, do a triangle choke or an armbar is, was incredibly small you would almost never, ever meet somebody like that. But here we are, we're in, we're in the 2000s and people have been grappling now for 20 or 30 years, very actively across the the world. And so the likelihood of you running into somebody that might know how to do something like that is, is significantly increased. So, you know, you as a good martial artist and a good warrior are always prepared for whatever that enemy might be. Again, Keeping that in mind and thinking of your falling techniques as active self-defense is really key for success on the street.
2: Would you lump being heavier or lighter into the same category as practicing ukemi as an active mindset?
1: I don't really think it it makes that much of a difference. I think if you are well-matched in your training, In your training partner, you have no idea what's going to happen in the street, but in the dojo, I don't want to put somebody like Big Dave, right, who's whatever, six foot three, six foot four, 270, 80 pounds with somebody that's five foot five and weighs 115 pounds. Like it's not a good training experience for either one of them. It's going to be very difficult to do anything on the larger person and the larger person's always going to feel like, you know, they're, they're tripping over a footstool or something and slamming themselves to the ground and neither one of them is going to enjoy that a lot. Training in the dojo is about enjoyment and having a great time working out with your partner. So I would make sure that those are partnered up correctly. Probably not something a bigger person is going to have to worry a hell of a lot about in the street that somebody that much smaller than them, I'm talking about somebody that's training in jujitsu, a large person is going to be thrown by a much smaller person, right? They're, They're definitely going to be able to control that situation and disengage. But again, it's about partnering the people correctly so that the falling feels natural and it's not damaging and it's not painful.
2: Right, right. That makes sense.
1: And I will also say, because gravity is not on your side, if you're a bigger person, you have to become better and better at, at falling. Because, you know, simply your mass, you know, hitting the ground is hitting with more force. So you really have to make sure that your falling technique is, is excellent and that you really can absorb the strike when you when you hit the ground in your body in a non-damaging way that you can do it over and over and over again for years.
2: So let's talk specifically about the diving roll, or maybe evolve up to that. What advice would you share with a white belt who's jumping a short distance versus like a blue belt who's jumping a very long
1: distance? Sure. So let's talk about rolls a little bit, and then I'll work my way up to the diving roll. So in ukemi we have backward roll, we got forward roll, we have kneeling side fall, we have those things where you're essentially, you know, rolling in some direction. Those are really about two things. Those are about your body becoming familiar with the ground in a way that protects the sharp, sharp corners of your bodies, like your elbows, your shoulders, your knees, your hips, you know, your head from striking the ground in a way that's damaging. And it's also about managing your, your spine, right? Everything from your neck to your sacrum is about making sure that that stays uninjured. It stays round. It stays flexible. That's really what, Roles are, are all about some of the roles, especially your forward roles, are a are little bit about being able to receive techniques like uke waza or yoko Wakari. right? It's a way to survive those throws instead of landing straight on your face. Dive rolls, on the other hand, are useful to a point from a self defense aspect, right? If you can hop over like two people and do a dive roll, you've probably reached the max that you're going to need for covering some kind of distance so I'm talking about you know maybe you're in a fight and you know you're getting cornered and the only thing you can do is like jump over this four foot wall and you have no idea what's on the other side so you're really thinking I'm gonna I'm gonna dive roll over like that makes some kind of sense or you're in the fray with a bunch of people and you gotta you gotta kind of lose your balance and then you're like man I gotta roll out of this that that's okay when we start talking about jumping over four or five, six people. I'm going to tell you, that's for pure entertainment purposes only. And it is entertaining. I mean, it's 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 a great challenge to be able to say, wow, look at the distance I can fly through the air and I can end up in a in a roll and I can do it safely. And it's a great confidence booster. But is it truly, truly necessary for real life? Probably not. That being said, being able to roll quickly having your mind be able to understand that a roll is instantaneously necessary and being able to position your body so quick that you can absorb that type of motion is really really key if you ever had to roll out of a speeding car or if you you know were suddenly you lost your balance and you're falling down a hill or something where you have to quickly quickly react and realize that a roll is far better than just, you know, like scraping your face along the ground. That's key for survival and for self defense. Jumping over five people, prob- probably not that much. If you like to do that in the dojo, I mean it takes a while. It takes a long time, right? I, I would say couple years to get comfortable with two people or three people, maybe five, six years before you're comfortable with more than that, because it takes such a a large amount of confidence to realize you're going to throw your body through the air and then you've got to roll out of it. So I just wanted to put some reality against that.
2: Switching gears slightly, if we were to talk about preserving our body or joints in the context of Aikijutsu, where would you start for a white belt and then progress up to a blue belt?
1: I think the most important thing to do early on, both in Jiu Jitsu, Aikijitsu, Nei is to not be resistant while you're learning the technique. It's easy while you're working with another white belt and they're trying to twist your wrist or, you know, bend your elbow or something to give them some muscular resistance to show that they're quote unquote, not doing it good enough or right or whatever. But the reality of it is you're also risking injury to yourself Uh, And that's just not worth it. It is not worth it. I mean, joints are essentially a bunch of floating bones, you know, held together by some cartilage and, and tendons and muscles and messing with that. I'll tell you in the long run for somebody that's done this, you know, I'm, I'm moving into my 36th year now. It's it's really not worth it. You got to play a smart game. So it's much better to learn how to become a good Uke, to know how to fall correctly from everything, to not give resistance and to just work with your partner. That is going to save your joints. Now, as you move up into higher ranks and you're high level blue belt or you're moving into brown or whatever, there is an appropriate level of resistance and your instructor can help you with that. But uh, at the beginning, you know, you're first year or two don't ruin your joints by just trying to prove that uh, you can you know make that other person fail at their technique just just work together and learn the techniques
2: would you consider someone coming in off the street to like pose risk to others within the dojo
1: yeah absolutely i mean the new person that comes in the dojo is the most dangerous person that whole concept that we use in our dojo and it's used in other dojos of so the congratulatory throw when somebody gets promoted is really just about congratulating them for a good test and for being promoted, but also giving them the kind of the wink of the eye. Thank you for all of the throws and injuries and stuff that, you know, you as the senior person received as they were learning coming up. So yeah, the new person's the most dangerous until they really understand how it all works how the techniques work, how to fall correctly, how to respond correctly. An instructor has to be incredibly wary of what that person is doing at every moment, not only for that individual person's safety, but also for the safety of other people in the dojo.
2: (laughs) The congratulatory throws make so much more sense now. (laughs) I think at its most extreme I'd be curious to get your thoughts about randori and other forms of unrehearsed activities within the dojo and how to preserve our bodies there as well. Sure.
1: So, I mean, I think you have to realize that randori and nawaza, right? So standing up practice, free practice where you're trying to throw each other or nawaza, rolling on the ground, is a training exercise, it does not reflect your self-defense ability. It is a training exercise, allowing you to try your techniques against someone who is giving you resistance. But resistance goes to a certain point, and then it's just simply not safe anymore. Like I mentioned before, you know, if somebody's executing a technique well on me, I might as well just tap uh, instead of risk injury. So if, if they're making a mistake, if they're leaving a big opening, yes, I'm going to use the appropriate escape from what they're doing. But if they're essentially doing it right, it's better that that person learns that they were doing it right and I tap out and we just get up and slap and, and move on. The reason people don't do that is ego. They want to win. Well, you know what? The enemy isn't in class. It's out on the street. And if you're all bumped and bruised and tweaked and your knees hurt and your back's killing you and you can barely turn your neck to the right and then somebody really attacks you on the street, you're going to be in the worst shape pro- possible to defend yourself. So, you know, let's not ruin yourself in class. Go out there. Have fun. Yeah, sure. Train hard. Right. But also take your own body into consideration. Take the body of your partner into consideration. Keep a certain level of, of safety and Even levity to it, right? Just have a good time out there training, learning the timing, learning how to trick your partner into getting thrown or to getting submitted. I think that's really, really important. When you're doing unrehearsed self-defense, so that is where the person is just attacking with street attacks and you're defending with jujitsu. I think one of the things you have to keep in mind is you are training about what you would do to a real person on the street. And I, and I know, especially at the lower ranks, we get to this point where we imagine ourselves walking down the street and you know, there's that guy in the alleyway and he's going to come out and he's going to grab us. And what what am I going to do? Or I'm at a bar, you know, and somebody grabs the back of my jacket, you know, how am I going to take him down and just like kick his ass? But reality is not that cool. Reality of a fight is not that cool. You really don't want to be in a fight to start with. It never ends. Well, both you can get in trouble legally, you know, you want to think to yourself if somebody was attacking me, what would be the minimum I could do to effectively control this person, take them to the ground, make the altercation stop, save myself or my loved ones from injury with the minimum amount of damage to that person? It's not appropriate for me that if somebody grabs me by the jacket and they punch me a couple times in the head, for me to do a throw with a neck break at the end. It's just not an appropriate response when you're doing that unrehearsed self-defense, think simple. What am I going to do if some guy really grabs me or somebody really hits me? I'm going to keep it simple. I'm going to keep it clean. I'm going to take that person to the ground. I'm going to control them and make them stop fighting with me. I think if you keep that in mind, you can really reduce injuries.
2: Gotcha. So if you encounter the training partner who maybe doesn't honor a strike because I didn't want to knock his teeth out, that's would be a good example of something whereas, Tori, I would just
1: move on? I think so too. And I think a good instructor is looking. They're watching that, and they need to maybe even stop it sometime and say, "Listen, man, it's only so real we can get here." Right? Some guy taps you in the face. There, that represents them socking you in the face. So you can't just pretend that it's nothing, right? We, we you really got to be like, "Okay, I just got, I just got hit in the face," because if you want to turn it into a real fight, it's going to be a real fight, and then somebody's going to get hurt. But you know, the enemy's not in the dojo. Again, we're just training, so train the best you possibly can. And a lot of it has to do with the uke, right, the attacker. You have to be a good attacker. You gotta keep the motion going, you gotta keep that other person thinking, you're not trying to be overly resistant to every single thing that they do. You're just in there, you're fluid, you're making them think, you're making them train. I think that's what makes a really good uke.
2: So it's almost like uh, being a good uke is its own sort of concept, sort of like how you were getting back to kemi being a active mindset.
1: Absolutely. and. If this helps anybody remember how to stay safe and how to train appropriately in class, remember that what we call that other person, that person that's on the other side of you. In English, we call him your training partner. Emphasis on the word partner. You guys are working together to become really good at self-defense. You're not working against each other. That he or she is not your opponent. They are your training partner. You both come to a place many times a week so that you both can become better at the art. So being you know, overly resistant or being really egotistical is not being a partner. And if you want to use the Japanese word for the person who gets thrown or is being defended against, it's uke. Okay. It's a receiver. It's the person who is the receiver of the techniques. So you have to be willing to receive those techniques in order for your, for your training partner to be able to train effectively. So just remember that partnership in the dojo.
2: I'd like to switch gears again and go back to outside of class. You'd mentioned early on that there were three facets to your philosophy, and I'd like to talk a little bit about like body maintenance, so some of the basics, so um, cutting your nails, skin disease and cleanliness, uh, considerations regarding hair.
1: Yeah, that's a good one for you, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> for anybody who's listening to this, Kyle joined the dojo with an abundance of hair. He has since found that that was not useful to him. So you know how Thanks,
2: that works. Big Dave.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so I, I think some real basics are, are super important, right? Number one, keep your body clean. You're in there. You're sweating a lot. Take your showers. Wear your deodorant. You're a partner, right? Nobody, nobody wants the funk. And wash your ghee. I wash my ghee after every single class. You know what? They're gonna wear out after a few years. You buy a new one, but wash it. Nobody, nobody wants to be, uh, you know, held down in Kama yoga or something and just smelling the super funky ghee. I think that's that's really important. Yeah, make sure your nails are short because not that you were out there scratching each other, but I can't tell you how many times just doing a gun takeaway or just, you know, roll and do a NAWAS as somebody's toenail or fingernail goes by and like, you know, takes a half inch of skin off my forehead. And that's really aggravating. So please keep them short. And even if you're just doing it for yourself so they don't get bent backwards or pulled out, that's that's kind of uh, important. Making sure that we clean the mats is really, really important. So a nice light wipe down every night with some sort of germicide, antifungal, antiviral, antibacterial is good. And then I would say maybe once a quarter, you know, really getting in in there with uh, some bleach and some water and making sure that it's really, really clean, right? Getting all the dust and all the body hair and everything else off the mat. I mean, there's nothing worse than, you know, rolling around your face down on the mat and there's like, you know, a pile of body hair and that's, (laughs) that's really not that enjoyable. As far as taking care of your injuries, you know, make sure anytime you're bumped, you're bruised, you're tweaked, ice that thing as soon as you possibly can. I'd say even ice it for a few days. Uh, realize any joint that you significantly tweak is going to take you about three months before that gets better, or at least before you start, you know, not thinking about it every day. Heat, you know, heat is more of a warm-up type of thing. So if you're a person that always has like a tight lower back, or my neck is always tight from... You know, stress or or whatever. I drive a lot in a truck. So, you know, my lower back, I don't have an injury, but it's just then I think, you know, the heat is a good thing to kind of loosen that up. Right. And and get it ready for class. But heat isn't really what you want to use specifically for, you know, a bump or a bruise or a tweak. I think some people react well to things like anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen and naproxen and, and other things like that, but other people don't and other people might have medical issues that that doesn't work for them. I myself try really not to take those uh, as much as possible. I really would rather do it, you know, the natural way. You know, if my doctor prescribes something, then of course I'm going to listen to my doctor. But if, if possible, you know, Ice and, and a good a good stiff shot of tequila. Okay, I'm not recommending that, but and I'm just saying um, <laughs> goes goes a long way. And then there are like bombs, right? There are, are you know of course we have our version of the old school tiger bomb, our, our katana bomb, but there are those things that have menthol in it and have you know eucalyptus and other other herbs and and things in it that really do well for, you know, bringing blood to the area of an injury. There may be a sensation of, of cold or heat, depending on what's happening in your body, but there, it's not actual temperature, right? It's not actually physically hot or physically cold. It's, it's simply a nerve sensation that, that you're feeling and there could be some numbing effects to it. So some people find those type of analgesic natural uh, type remedies to to work for them. I I know I do. I've used them for quite a long time. You know, I certainly don't do it right away. If I tweak out my knee, it's ice, it's ice for a few days. But then after that, once it starts feeling better and the swelling has gone away, you know, I like to put that analgesic on it just to, you know, you know, give it that sensation of a little bit of warmth and that analgesic, you know, numbing sensation is, is very, very helpful.
0: Shian, I just wanted to add, if you have a skin disease or some kind of infection, uh, this happened to me when I was a white belt training towards the end of the summer. And in fact, uh, I had something, it seemed like it was getting worse and worse, like it looked like my skin was getting eaten away. And I uh, went to a number of doctors, they didn't know. I finally went to a, um, yeah. I, I went to a really good dermatologist <laughs> and... And he uh, diagnosed it as impetigo and put me on immediately on antibiotics. And I told him I was training with uh, with you guys, and he said he told me you stay off the mats for at least like uh, you know three weeks until it's completely cleared up. And that was really hard for me because I was so gung ho about it, and it just started just a few months into oh, yeah. it. So, That's a problem. Yeah, I mean, how, can you give some advice about how to how to deal with that and take the time off? Yeah, sure. Off?
1: Absolutely, and I've dealt with this. Uh, luckily, myself only a couple of times, but I've seen it many people over the years. So, there's these skin diseases that, that kind of come in three different buckets, right? Ones are the uh, there are some that are medical type issues, right? Which are you know, autoimmune skin diseases or, you know, those type of, of things, stress induced or whatever. It's not necessarily caused by some external factor. Then you have the ones that are are caused by some kind of external factor. They could be bacterial or, or viral in some way. They weren't caused at the dojo, right? They were caused in other places, but, you know, you have to take the dojo in consideration. And then you've got the third bucket, which are the things that maybe happen at the dojo, like ringworm or something to that effect. By the way, for those who don't know, ringworm doesn't have anything to do with the worm. It's, it's, uh, you know, a fungal disease, but that's just called that because it makes a circle. But anyway, I think making sure again, that you're, your uniforms are clean, that you are clean, that all the partners are clean, you know, that you have clean bathrooms in your facility, that you wipe down the mats and you wipe down your equipment. I think that's really helps in the dojo quite a bit. If you have ringworm, you really should take some time off until it gets past the the spreadable point and see your doctor so they can give you some topical things for it. If you catch something outside like poison ivy or anything like that outside that, you know, is, is, spreadable in the dojo, obviously you're going to need to take some time off and, and it's kind of a bummer to have to take two or three weeks off. But when you look at it in terms of a lifetime of martial arts, it's really not that long. And it's, and it's, think about your partners out there. You don't want to, you don't want to infect them. And then if you have any medical type issues, obviously those should be taken care of by your doctor and, and they may or may not be contagious and may or may not impact your, your training in class, but only a doctor would be able to tell you that.
0: In the spirit of what we're talking about, there are other things you can do outside of the dojo, and that's actually when I started my my jujitsu journal.
1: Oh, okay. And so you uh, you had this issue, and and you were missing class, and that's when you started your journal.
0: That's right. I I started coming in because you'd mentioned in the past in classes that, you know, everyone starts, you know, has a book and taking notes. And so I I started doing that. I I still came to class. I sat around. I didn't go on the mats. I didn't make any contact with anybody physically. But I started writing down what I was learning and what I was seeing. And I've been continuing to do that since then. It's a
1: great learning experience to be able to sit out and watch what's going on, right? Especially if you can watch the people of your own rank. Um, You know, you can see all those things that you couldn't see when you were doing it. So, you know, sometimes it's a blessing in disguise. You know, you've got, uh, you know, tennis elbow or you've got a cauliflower ear or your, you know, your lower back's hurting you or, you know, you broke your toe, whatever. And, And it's kind of a bummer. You can't get in there and train. But that doesn't mean you can't train. That just means you can't get in and physically move and train, but you certainly can sit on the side of the mat and you can take notes and you can watch and you can ask questions and you can train the brain, right? Because 99% of what you do in self-defense comes from your brain to start with, so it's it's a it's a good learning exercise.
2: So, Shihan, if we were to take a segue and talk about diet, where would you like to start?
1: Well, I think diet is incredibly important for fitness and longevity. Everybody's diet and what their body needs is different now there are some large bodies of knowledge about what is good for us and what's not good for us and i agree with all of those right we we understand the fundamentals of how the body works we know that there are foods that are good for us and foods that aren't so good for us. And we know that there are foods that aren't really foods and they're really bad for us. Uh, we know anything in in moderation can be handled, but, you know, too much of anything, even good things can be bad. We know being hydrated and having a good amount of water is, is really important. We, you know, we know that a lot of vegetable and fruit is very good for us. And meat, too, can be good for us. But again, it's all up to the individual. Everybody has their individual version of health. And what I think health in relation to diet and fitness is, is your body performing at its maximum level. Now, that can't always be sustained. We have ups and downs, good days, bad days. We get ill. Sometimes we feel like rock stars. But in over, overall, over a long period of time, I think health is maintaining a certain level of flexibility having your body and your organs perform at their maximum and not be hindered by pollutants, having strong musculature to support your, your skeleton, having a sharp mind and good vision. I think all of those things are what nature wants us to have as, as primal living animals, right? That's how we perform our best. And, and out there fighting other human beings, even if it's just training over and over for years and years, Our body needs to to keep those things right. We need to stay sharp. My general perspective is that if you have a diet that is very low in pollutants and is very low in sugars, I would say refined sugars, and is moderately low in refined carbs, you have some sources of proteins, you have a good amount of fruits and vegetables, I think in general, you're going to be good to go, right? I, I think those are the general rules. I think there are things out there that, yeah, we all enjoy from time to time, like a cake or a pastry or a little bit of soda or something like that. You know, you put a little bit in there, your body handles it. But if it's something that becomes a habit, you are damaging your body and you may not see it right away. That's one of the downfalls of humans, right? If you don't see the damage right away, it's like, well, yeah, it's not that bad. But boy, you will see it cumulatively over time. There is no question about it. I consider myself to be in pretty decent shape. I know there are a lot of people my age that are paying the price for not taking care of themselves earlier. We all don't know how long we're going to live. You could be in great shape and die when you're 55. You could be in crappy shape and die when you're 80. But I think it's more about the quality of the time that you have. Are you able to stay actively doing all of the things that are really important to you and feel good doing them? I think that's the level of health and fitness that a good diet, good exercise can give you.
2: I positively can't think of anything else to ask you regarding this topic.
1: Okay, good. So just to reiterate, I mean, I think we were talking about longevity and and how to stay doing jujitsu for a long time. And I think that's really key. I mean, most of us love doing jujitsu. That's why we do it three times a week. And and as you know, I mean, I'm talking to two people who know exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes the people that are not in jujitsu just think you're crazy. You know, it's like, how do you go in there week after week and you throw each other around, you get choked out, you get arm barred. Sometimes you get injured. Sometimes you're out for a couple of weeks. You know, you got bruises on your face. You got a cauliflower ear. Why is that good? I don't know how to explain that, but if if you're in it, you know what I'm talking about. It, it is good. It feels good to do it. You, you know, you, you just feel alive when you're doing it. You feel like you're part of this world and, and you're living, a, a, you know, a really active life. And I, I want that to go on for as long as possible for everybody involved in jiu-jitsu. But you cannot do that if you go at this with ego. And I'll tell you the proof of that. If you've been around for a while, I want you to think of an MMA name from 15 years ago. And are they still doing it? 10 years ago, are they still doing it? Hell, you could probably think of people five years ago that aren't doing it. You can't go in there with a huge ego, fight at 100% every day, and think that you're going to have any longevity because you simply will not. And I grew up with idols who had done Jitsu for their whole life. Duke Moore started in... 1943 or 44 and he did jiu-jitsu until a week before he died in his mid-80s. 40 or 50 years of doing jiu-jitsu, doing that thing you love, I think is is great. Professor Kufrost did the same thing. Well, he did it even longer. He started when he was a kid and did it until he was in his 80s. You know, being able to have that longevity is about preserving your body and making sure it's going to last that long and it stays in optimal health for as long as possible none of us know how long we have but let's make sure it's enjoyable and we're fit and we can have fun living uh, and jujitsu is a big big piece of that for us
2: wow that is so desirable thank you for sharing shihan
1: you are welcome sri any any questions or anything you wanted to add
0: no, Shihan, this has been very inspirational, so thank you very much for sharing your background.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. And I, I know this wasn't focused on technical, and it wasn't focused on self-defense or any of that sort of thing, but I think it's really, really important for anybody that practices the martial arts, especially Jiu-Jitsu, to think about this a little bit. Think about your approach, and make sure that you are really clear about, you know, if you want to do this for a long time, what you have to do to, to have longevity in Jiu-Jitsu.